Let's open our Bibles to the book of Romans chapter 1. If you have a prayer slip or visitor slip, if you pass that over, we'll collect those and thank you for sharing that with us. Well, we return to the book of Romans this morning after several months of receiving other challenges from God's Word. And our journey in Romans really is, we've entered into the mountain range, this Mount Everest of Scripture has taken us to Romans 5. And before we venture into Romans 6, I thought it would be good because some of you weren't here when we started uh, a while ago. And uh, we've been through the summer and a refresher, I think, would be important. I thought it would be important for us to get our bearings as as a way of reminder of the doctrinal truths set forth by the Apostle Paul in this book of Romans. I I, I would speak to one who, who would is with us today who maybe you're wondering I just need some help in understanding what I need to believe what is the Bible about the book of Romans is the perfect book uh, for that as we see a, a presentation of the gospel that saves of what God has extended to us through Jesus Christ Romans um, has impacted uh, history greatly from Paul's own transformation on the Damascus Road when he was saved and he became the Apostle Paul in time by God's appointment and uh, he wrote this book of Romans outlining what the gospel is, what we need to believe to put our faith in Jesus Christ. But I think of such men as Augustine in the fourth century, who you may not be familiar with, but was a titan for Christ in the fourth century and stood strong for the Lord. He was a man given over to unbridled lust. In fact, he was living his life to the full in that pursuit. And there was a time just feeling downcast and discouraged. He was sitting uh, on a bench and there were some children playing nearby and And Augustine heard the children uh, cry out, Tola lege, tola lege, take up and read. And so he didn't know what that meant, so he just took a stab and grabbed a book of the letters of the Apostle Paul and opened it up. And the first verse he came to was in Romans 13, which called uh, us not to follow the ways of this world or the ways of our flesh, but the Lord Jesus Christ. And Augustine was born again. 1,100 years later, Martin Luther came across in the book of Romans in a study of the Psalms that the just shall live by faith. Romans 1.17, quoting Habakkuk 2 and the principle set forth in the book of Genesis with Abraham. And Luther was converted and was a leader in the Reformation. Some years later, John Wesley who was a religious man and had gone to America to convert the Indians. It's kind of hard to convert the Indians when you're not converted. And so he got on the ship to go back, defeated and downcast because his ministry had really been fruitless. And he heard some Moravian, uh, Moravians who sing on, on the ship in the midst of a storm. And he was wondering, why do they sing like that in the face of great danger? I don't have what they have. (laughs) And so he made his way back to England and he entered a a little chapel, Aldersgate Chapel. And it was in the evening and he heard Martin Luther's preface to the book of Romans read. 
And, and Wesley said, my heart was strangely warmed. Some of us can identify with encountering the Lord in that way. We hear the truth of God and our heart is warmed and we say, that's what I believe. And we rise and walk and we follow the Lord Jesus Christ. So Romans roars through the centuries as a clarion call, a clear call uh, on, on what it means to be reconciled to God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so because of this, we should give our best efforts to understand and treasure this life-changing book. Romans enlarges our vision of God's plans. If anyone wants an unvarnished presentation of the gospel, the book of Romans offers that for us. It answers all the deep questions of life. It, has, it was written with the premise that without God's grace and life-giving power found in Christ, we cannot please God on our own. So all the more reason to turn to him and to respond in your heart of hearts what we sang just a moment ago, in Christ alone my hope is found. So Romans presents authentic Christianity and defines life in Christ as a supernatural empowerment. And for the believer, doctrine guides our life. The most important thing about you is what you believe about Jesus Christ. You may not think that. You may think, no, the, really the most important thing in my life right now is managing my 401k, this car I want to buy, this job I want to get, this relationship I want to have. I want to maybe challenge you with, with, with this thought. The most important thing about you is what you do with Jesus Christ because it has eternal ramifications. Isn't that overstating it? Aren't you being a bit melodramatic? No. No, I, that is the message of Scripture. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And I pray that you would come to find that life in Christ today and for all of us that we would be strengthened in our commitment to the Lord. The gospel calls for a response, an allegiance, a commitment that puts to death the myth of the, neutri the, the, myth of the neutral we long for things, I think, in our flesh to be neutral, <clears throat> where we don't, excuse me, where we don't have to really commit, we just want to be neutral. There's no neutrality in God's world in this universe. Dustin Benge, who redeems Twitter better than anyone I know for the glory of God, wrote recently, the world says, love yourself. Jesus says, deny yourself. The world says, serve yourself. Jesus says, serve others. The world says, forgive yourself. Uh, Jesus says, forgive others. The world is utterly opposed to the agenda of Jesus Christ. The book of Romans brings us back to come under the canopy of that agenda. No wonder this letter has been, had such a, mon a monumental impact on history. So I want to hang my thoughts today on three points. The first would be reconnecting with Romans. After a lazy, hazy summer, uh, reconnecting with Romans. And whenever you approach a letter in the New Testament, uh, some basic questions emerge. The first would be, who wrote it? And we know from chapter 1, verse 1, the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote the book of Romans. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all the old covenant promises, which he says in verse 2, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures concerning his Son. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of that. 
This is the longest introduction of any of Paul's letters. This was written to a church he didn't plant. And so he was hoping to establish a relationship with them to be able to be sent by the church at Rome into Europe and Spain. So the gospel is the good news of God through Jesus Christ. And it was promised in the Old Testament. It was promised to Abraham. It says in scripture that Abraham believed God and God counted it to him as righteousness. So this is the pattern of salvation. Faith in Jesus Christ, God credits the righteousness of his son to us by faith in him alone. These are powerful words. Paul had such an illustrious life. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He knew the law. He was trained at the feet of Gamaliel, one of the prominent rabbis of the day. He had much of the scriptures memorized. If you want to read his spiritual resume, look in Philippians chapter 1. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee of Pharisees, and he says in light of this incredible, impeccable spiritual resume, I count it all dung in light of knowing Jesus Christ. I count it as a manure pile in light of knowing Christ but before he knew, came to know the Lord, before he was converted on the Damascus Road, he was one mean individual. He was a persecutor of the church. He was angry with the spread of this word. He was there at the death of Stephen. He was there when, when, he, when Stephen was stoned in the first, as the first martyr and witnesses uh, laid their coats at the feet of one named Saul. He wreaked havoc on the church, the scripture says. But God saved him and would use him to write 13 letters in the New Testament. So Romans is the Mount Everest of Paul's letters. Who was it written to? It's the only introduction we have written to a church, again, that he didn't plant. But a prominent church in the capital of the, of the greatest empire of the world at the time. When was it written? Well, in Romans 16, it indicates that it was probably written around 58 uh, A.D. Uh, from Corinth, and the purpose is really to clarify the gospel and to prepare the church to send Paul to the ends of the earth. The message, it has so many messages, but the chief message would be the gospel and our duty to it, to live it out. Maybe you're wondering, what is the gospel? What do you mean by Romans outlining that? It would be simple, something we call the Roman road that I think we need to revisit. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, you, me, and everybody. Secondly, the wages of my sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Well, how does that gift come into my mess? How does that gift come into my life? Well, God demonstrated his love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5.8. And this gift, this love is received in this way, Romans 10. If I confess with my mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in my heart that God has raised him from the dead, I will be saved. Saved from what? Saved from, from the punishment of sin. Saved from hell itself. Reconciled to God and received into his very presence. And so we're called to respond in this way.
So reconnecting with Romans, that's the foundation to understand it. Now, let's reacquaint, secondly, let's reacquaint ourselves with key themes of the, doc, uh, of the gospel, key doctrinal themes. And we look in chapter one, I read for you a moment ago, this statement, which I think is probably the theme verse of Romans. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, which is quite a challenge to us. Because I think we as Christians, particularly with greater antagonism towards um, uh, the Christian message, towards the exclusivity of Christ, towards the Bible in general, towards the church, that we might be tempted just to be quiet. I think there's a difference between being bold and being obnoxious. We don't want to be obnoxious, but we certainly want to be faithful. And often Christians are like what one man described, we're like the Arctic River. We're frozen over at the mouth, <laughs> just locked up, man. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God unto salvation. Would you think for a moment right now, just in the quietness of this moment, Lord, am I ashamed of you? Am I like Peter who warmed himself by the fire, denying you? What a call for us to embrace an unashamed commitment to Jesus Christ and to be a witness for him. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation. There's no other means by which you can know God, God's salvation except through what he has done through Jesus Christ. And we need this. We need this as the greatest need in our life because not only has the righteousness of God, verse 17, been revealed, but verse 18 says the wrath of God has been revealed. There is a wrath of God that should concern us all. And what's the only thing that can alleviate the wrath of God in my life? And that is Christ who absorbed the wrath of God on the cross. From verse 18 all the way to the end of the chapter is a horror show. Romans 1, 18 through 32. It's, it's the death spiral of humanity. It's a suppression of the revelation of God. It's a denial of the truth. It's a, a taking sin to new categories of wickedness to where you read the summary of it in verse 29 and through 32. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil and covetous malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent. Haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, fools, faithless, heartless, ruthless, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, listen to this. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. If that is not an excerpt from uh, uh, an excellent commentary on today's news, I don't know what is. Romans helps us diagnose the human problem that we, by nature, pursue wrong things. We, no one had to teach us that. Wrong passions, wrong desires. We have a culture drowning in rebellion and confusion, groping in darkness and narcissism, rejecting biblical authority, guided by their desires of life without God. 
and it destroys their lives and marriages and families and jobs and relationships and communities. I mean, without exception in a given week, just watching clips on the news, you go into some fast food restaurant or you see, you know, one that comes to my mind in Pennsylvania is the Golden Corral in Pennsylvania ran out of steak. And so there's a riot in in the Golden Corral because they don't have any more steak. They're throwing high chairs and chairs and they're fighting with the, you know, the employees. That happens all the time. Lawlessness. This unbridled um, snubbing of God's design. We see it in the rejection of gender and sexuality being made in the image of God. And there's hearty approval for it all. Sin brings guilt. But we will circumnavigate the globe to avoid dealing with guilt. The reason that we are guilty is because we're sinful. The reason Adam and Eve hid in the bushes is because they were sinful. Guilt should drive us to God's remedy in Jesus Christ, not to find a substitutes to alleviate or assuage our our guilt. The human remedies uh, when guilt comes will not solve the problem. We follow Adam's lead and point fingers. I think one of the desires today, if I can only get a diagnosis, then I'll have my excuse for life. And I won't have to deal with issues of the heart Guilt leads to emptiness. What's life about? Life is meaningless to many. It's depressing. We we hear of ongoing uh, suicide and loneliness, which breeds a hopelessness. There's no way forward. I heard it described this way recently. The youth years are filled with such promise and fun. With school and all the fun times that often acquaint the youth years, and then disappointments come. You don't, get, you don't get to be on the team or you didn't score on the test or the grades you wanted um, didn't come through uh, or, or even sometimes the grades others expected from you, you let down and you don't get the relationship with the girl or the boy and you don't get the scholarship or the accomplishments and You get into a job you don't like and you never get a promotion and you get married, but that sours. Um, And you think that it'll get better with kids, but that only reveals the issues of the heart. It breeds a hopelessness. And people just check out. Years ago, I remember visiting a man who was home alone, sitting in the dark, weeping because his wife had left him. Who had really experienced all the things I just outlined for you and wondered if there was any hope for him. I was there that night to say, yes, there is. The gospel brings light and hope to these devastating um, situations and human expectations and assessments come to come to to see real joy when we surrender to Christ. But we live in a a place, a world of hopelessness. I I was reminded of that this week. If you grew up in the 60s and 70s and 80s, you 
like I did. You remember the name Olivia Newton-John. She was like a cultural icon, and she, she died recently. And she was in a famous movie uh, with John Travolta. And this was John Travolta's tribute to Olivia Newton-John. My dearest Olivia, you made all of our lives so much better. Your impact was incredible. I love you so much. We will see you down the road and we will all be together again. Yours from the moment I saw you and forever, you're Danny, which was his character in the movie. You're John. And I read that and I thought, on the basis of what? John. Not wanting to minimize your grief or intrude in your life, but this was a public statement. On the basis of, of what do you hope to see her in the future again when we're all gathered together? And that's usually the answer. Crickets. Romans says, we don't have a universal hope apart from Christ. The answer to the death spiral is Jesus Christ. The reason this church exists is to proclaim that he's a living savior. And he is the one you need in your life today to repent of your sins and to turn to him. Look across the page at chapter two, verse four. Or, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness? We, we sang this morning of his loving kindness, his forgiveness, but it must be received. And, and there's a presumption here on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience. It's his kindness that leads us to what? Repentance. Turning from our sin and turning to Jesus Christ. God is patient and he's kind and he's forbearing. But you know, there comes a time when that's over. There's an urgency to get your life right with the Lord today. Chapter 3, Paul outlines our problems, verses 10 through 20. Would you just take in this assessment? You know, if someone were to say to you in the course of normal conversation, you know, there's no one who's righteous, no, not one. There's no one who understands, there's no one who seeks God. We would say, you know, you're out of balance. You're not well. But that's exactly what we read in Romans 3. He goes on to say, we've turned aside. We've become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Well, for now, we, uh, for sure, uh, now we know that you're a crackpot. No one does good. Not as God counts goodness. Not as God counts righteousness. We need a redeemer. And in the latter part of chapter 3, he says in verse 24, we're justified by his grace as a gift those who are not righteous, those who do not seek him, by his grace we are brought to him. And through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, God put forward, look at verse 25 of chapter 3, God put him forward as a propitiation by his blood. That means Jesus Christ satisfied on the cross our sin. He satisfied God's wrath as a merciful means of forgiveness to be extended to us by faith in him alone. God went public with Jesus. And then in chapter four, verse five, and to the one who does not work but believes, has faith in him, in Christ, 
who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Wow, that seems too good to be true. I put my faith in Jesus Christ. I don't have to do anything. I don't have to go into prescribed meetings or get a list of chores as I leave the the church today. Nope, not to be reconciled to God. It's by faith. Now, right relationship with God produces within us a hunger to please Him and to serve Him and to to give our lives in, in, in service to Him. But that's not to earn salvation. It's by faith in Him alone. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. A lot of people are looking for peace today. Wouldn't you agree? Maybe you're looking for peace today. It's not something you can buy. And this peace is not talking about tranquility of the heart, this, is, this piece is talking about my warfare with God has been ended. My warfare as a sinner, as a rebel, has been ended by what Jesus Christ has done for me. We have peace with God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Tim Keller said, unless you're willing to admit you're at war with God, you will never know how to surrender. And that surrender comes in faith to Jesus Christ. And now we come full circle in this review. We come to the last section of chapter five and we'll launch into chapter six next week. And what we see here is a picture of reigning death and triumphant grace. Reigning death and triumphant grace. And in chapter five, verses 12 through 21, Paul lays out probably the hardest paragraph in the book of Romans to interpret. He says in verse 12, therefore, since as just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. So there he makes this statement and he, he really doesn't pick up with it again until verse 18. But Paul is presenting the entire human race into two distinct groups. In Adam and in Christ. They're not three or four or more. They're two. In a sense, all of us are in Adam until that day we're in Christ. And so he's making this important argument. Paul is giving us a blow by blow of the universal extent of sin and guilt. Whether you're Jew or Gentile, together we're guilty before God. Because one thing about Adam, he's a universal figure. He's the first man. And so this wouldn't be a a national uh, concern. Paul develops his comparison between Adam and Christ, representing two groups. And what he says in verse 12 is that sin entered the world through one man. So our greatest problem is not our need for more education, although we're not disrespecting educate we're thankful for that God doesn't champion a lazy mind God doesn't champion ignorance but our our greatest need is not more education or self-help programs sin entered the world through one man through his disobedience Eve was also implicated although Paul leaves her out Adam's responsible as the leader of that marriage and the federal head of of the human race. Death entered the world through sin. 
And so we argue strongly for the historicity of Adam. He wasn't some fictitious character. Philip Ryken said, we cannot understand the world or our faith without a real historical Adam. Jesus certainly believed in him. And in Adam, we all have sinned. Death came to all men because all sinned. Paul moves from sin and death being present in one man to their presence in all men, all humanity, men and women, boys and girls. As death came to one man because he sinned, so death came to all men because they sinned. And so, in what sense have we all sinned so that all die? All have sinned by copying and repeating Adam's sin. All sin, all have sinned when Adam sinned and were included in his sinning, which is hard for us to accept. But that's why he talks about that period between Adam and Moses with no law, that we all sin in Adam. And so, what's, why is that important? Because through one man all sin, through another man all become righteous. All become righteous. And that one man is Jesus Christ. If you would believe on him today, if you would trust him today, hope is trumpeted because Christ has overturned sin's curse. I can't think of a more timely message than that for us today. As we deal with discouragements and hopelessness and other things that weigh us down, let me close with this. As you think about which group are you in, are you in Adam? All of us are by birth, but the question of the hour is, are you in Christ? Have you responded to this good news of the gospel, and are you surrendered to him? Ecclesiastes 7.20, I read this this morning. Um, It says, surely there's not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. The cross is the epicenter of our equality. We're all sinners, and we need him. Would you receive him today? Would you bow with me in prayer? As we think about the book of Romans, as it comes to bear on what we believe and what we hope in, I said something this morning. I don't know if you agree with it or not. I hope you do, but it really gets us to think about what's most important. And that is what you believe about Jesus Christ is the most important thing about you. Because it determines your eternity. Our hobbies, they fade away. Things that we treasure in this life, they rust and thieves break in and steal. That's why Jesus said, lay up your treasure in heaven where moths can't destroy and thieves can't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And I pray that your treasure would be Jesus Christ. If you've never received him into your life by faith, this good news is extended to you yet again this morning. What is keeping you from responding to him? I've been talking with young men recently and just asking, what are you guys waiting for? You don't need more truth. The issue is, who are you going to live for? Why are you ashamed to get in the baptistry and profess him? 
It's time to lay your life on the line. It's time to surrender to Him. The world behind you, the cross before you, that you would line up with Paul. I'm not ashamed of the gospel anymore because I've come to see it's the power of God unto salvation. Come into my life, Lord Jesus. Transform me for your glory. I surrender to you right now. Because I know if I die in my sins, I will perish in my sins. But you've come to redeem me. And to you I trust. To you I come right now. Lord Jesus, in these closing moments, the decisions on the, on the hearts in this room, may we give complete obedience to you. May we offer ourselves to you in obedience and surrender and commitment because you are worth it all. We remember on that Friday long ago when you hung on the cross and, and you declared as the last word spoken, it is finished, our sin debt is paid in full. And three days later, you rose from the dead. You're a living savior. Come to us now that we might live for you in a world that's in a death spiral and without hope. May we affirm our hope in you. And may you transform lives even right now, Lord. Come in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together as we sing. If there are needs on your heart, you come this morning.